This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to the Minefields, where we are not negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life in the traditional way uh, at the moment. We're in the midst of our Ramadan series, so this is week two of it. Last week we um, looked at the whole concept of desire, really. This is where we start to look at specific things, I guess, and try to break them down just a little bit. And I I have a fear, I will confess. Um, Today's topic, every now, I know I say this every now and again, this one, in the most literal way, I think, has the potential of of undermining the existence of the show. Absolutely it, right. It probably... <laughs> the end point of this conversation is probably that our entire job, the entire job is unethical. That's probably the end point. I don't want to preempt it. Well, I suppose I just did, didn't I? But strap yourselves in, everybody, because that could be the destination. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Are you as concerned about this as I am? Oh, maybe a little less. Maybe a little less. Because we are touching on something that we've touched on intermittently over the history of the show. This mm. will be the episode where we, I think, get into it most rigorously. I think you're right at one end of the spectrum. I mean, this is something you introduced last week, that sometimes you need to confront one excess with another, and then maybe something like a mean can be achieved. Maybe, and from one point of view, that's kind of what we're doing. I I like to think that there's something else, (laughs) that there's something else going on here. There's a, uh, there's no way of talking about without talking about it. No, just talk about it. All right. So the overarching theme throughout our Ramadan series is the relationship between purification and the moral life. It sounds so weird because we as a society do not believe in sources of corruption or defilements or pollutants unless they have to do with the environment or maybe some of the foods that we eat. The the idea that there are forms of inner you can't call them inner behavior. That there are habits. Yeah, states. There are they're, states of the inner life. States. Thank you. The, the idea that there are states of the inner life that can be defiled, corrupt, or corrupting. The idea that there are forms of behavior that can defile or corrupt. I wouldn't say that it's completely beyond our imagination, because there are some things, of course, there's some things that people can say, and we would say that that, the very act of saying that, reveals something corrupt about them. There are certain forms of behavior, we would say, the very act of doing that. It's not just something that they did outside themselves, but it's, it's, it reveals a kind of corruption, a deep corruption of the self. We tend to assign those sorts of things, though, almost kind of states of, of, of evil. So we would say that someone is a capital R racist if they use a particular term. Someone is a capital P pedophile if they engage in certain behavior. So we tend to associate certain forms of speech and certain forms of behavior with, say, states of defilement or corruption or evil. But the idea that that corruption, defilement, evil, impurity, that these are things that are part of the constant struggle that constitutes the moral life, 
that really is beyond a great deal, I think, of moral and philosophical discourse. It feels at that point you really are getting into, say, religious or theological territory. But what that shows me, and this is what we, I think, tried to explain last week, didn't we, is that what the forms of moral philosophy or philosophical deliberation or reflection practiced by the ancients probably have more in common with many philosophical and theological forms of discourse and practice than they do with a great deal of what goes under the name of moral philosophy. So the idea of the inner life, the inner struggle, the clash with oneself, the struggle against what Iris Murdoch called the fat, relentless ego, the idea of purification, the purification of desire, the orientation of the self towards that which is good. I mean, these are all staples of certain forms of religious discourse, but these are also staples within the history of philosophy and moral philosophy. So what we've been wanting to do is to bring the focus back on the idea that the fundamental site of moral struggle is in the realm of interiority. That's not to say that external struggles don't matter, that political struggles, forms of cooperation for the achievement of a shared end, that these things don't matter. No, it's to say the opposite, isn't it? It's I to say that right. those things are most compellingly the outcome. Yes, that's right. Of the inner struggle. Actually, I, I love this. There's this moment in Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, where he says that people think that virtue and vice are just the product of or the concern of the inner life. What they don't realize is that virtue and vice breathe into the air at every moment. In other words, however it is we are internally, there is something about that that then spills over into the cultivation of the environment in which we all live. And I think that's nowhere more the case than the particular object of purification that we're talking about today. So last week... Yes, go on. We talked about the purification of desire, the idea that the self is oriented outwards. The question is whether that orientation is acquisitive. It's a matter of craving, of possession, and of satisfaction, or whether that form of outward orientation, is it towards the good? Is it towards something? I mean, Plato would have called it the sun the thing that casts its benevolent light over all things such that we can see them in their proper dignity and reality. Today, we're talking about the purification. Okay, you know, we're, we're using deliberately kind of outmoded or antique language. We're talking about the purification of the tongue, namely the purification of speech. So therein, Walid, lay your concern that if we do this topic justice, it may well be that we have nothing left to say. Is that your... <laughs> yeah. Can I say why? Please. Because in my experience, which I don't pretend is vast, but I've, you know, thought of probably more about this and read more about this than probably the average Australian citizen, mm-hmm. I would guess. The more I read about it and the more seriously I think about the most serious thoughts on it, and prescriptions on it, the smaller and smaller and smaller the scope for moral speech becomes. Mm, Interesting. 
I mean, we're all familiar with the phrase silence is golden. And I feel like it's kind of, I don't even know if people do say it very much anymore. I feel like I used to hear it a bit when I was a kid. And I feel we just say it. We don't really think about where that's coming from, what the roots of that sort of saying are. But what you find, and one of the things we were doing last week was, you know, bringing together, trying to get a whole lot of different moral and religious traditions to talk to one another Mm. to, Mm. to see what sort of overlap there was. I think one of the things you find in common amongst so many, perhaps even all of them, is this emphasis on silence. That actually there is so little of what we say that needs to be said or indeed should be said. At this point, I want to point out something. Last week's show was focused on the concept of desire, really. Mm. And that was done as an umbrella for the subsequent shows. So Mm. the subsequent shows, including this one, fit within it. And I want to start with that idea that when we are talking about speech, this act of talking, or perhaps it's the act of writing, increasingly, I suppose, with the advent of the internet, it is the act of writing, right? We are talking about a desire. Hmm. That's a really good way of putting it. That's right. So we're not talking about something that we just happen to do. We're not even talking about something very often, almost always, we're not talking about something that we need to do in any kind of meaningful sense of the word need. We're talking about something we like doing. And I reckon that's a really, we overlook this. We don't don't pay attention to this fact that when we're talking, we are satisfying a desire. There are, in most cases, that's not to say there aren't times where speech is really important. Of course there are. But overwhelmingly, this is what we're doing, right? So let's think about the kind of example that I think most serious moral traditions and reflections would frown upon. And that is, say, the example of gossip. Like I'm well aware that there are some, particularly in social scientists, who would make arguments for gossip as, you know, an important um, practice in norm setting in a society. So, you know, it's by the deployment of gossip that we establish what the moral limits of a society are, et cetera, et cetera. That may be a useful description of the role that gossip plays, but it seems to me it gives it far too free a pass for what is typically happening. What I want to direct your attention to is in that moment where you've gossiped, how much did you enjoy it? Like how irresistible was it to you? Like that, you know, that you see the moment where you get to say something about someone, usually someone who's not present, obviously, that is nasty or potentially slanderous or just something that they wouldn't like to hear or just none of your business. And what do you do? You go for it because you can't resist it. It's the verbal equivalent of, well, to pick up something from last week's episode, it's the verbal equivalent of ice cream. (laughs) Is it not? Am I I wrong about that? Uh, Go on. I'll, I'll take a slightly different tack, but go on. Sure. I'm just, that's just picking an example. There, there is an enjoyment to gossip, to appearing, to being in the know, to having, even if we would regard, which I do, a great deal of what passes for quote unquote opinion as really commodified gossip. Yeah. There is also a certain enjoyment in feeling something very, very strongly 
about something that really you have no standing, you have no place to be weighing in on, and yet you think that the very act of pronouncing something and pronouncing it powerfully ought to be kind of self-justifying. I, I think you're absolutely right. There is an undeniable enjoyment. There's a pleasure that goes along with it. Precisely, it's delectable. It is, but precisely to the extent that it is an imposition of the self upon the world. It's more than that. It's also a way of attaining relative status. Yeah. And look, so that one is, of the reasons we, we condemn yeah. others or we gossip about others is that it helps us to lower the estimation of that person That's in right. the eyes of who we're talking to and in a relative sense, if not in an absolute sense, raise the estimation of ourselves. Yes, and that is precisely why Immanuel Kant devoted such a huge amount of his work on the virtues <laughs> to the condemnation of slander in all forms. Because he said what slander does is ultimately it is a way of bolstering and burnishing the credentials of the ego. It's a way of elevating oneself, but then destructively, it is a way of condemning, of treating contemptuously, and therefore lowering the estimation of another human being. And what he regarded, and I, I think he was absolutely right in doing this, what forms of slander do is they reduce another human being to means to my end. And my end is the elevation of myself and that person, that person's reputation, the ability of other people to take that person seriously, to view them properly in the future, that then becomes the necessary sacrifice for my elevation. Right. So that's just the example of gossip, yeah. which is a fairly obvious example. And you might say, well, it's easy to avoid that. Actually, it's not that easy to avoid it, but you could say that it's mm. easy to avoid that. But I, th I think the problem is once you start then expanding on, okay, well, what, are, what kinds of speech become best avoided for the realisation of, you know, the highest level of moral life that you could hope to, to attain. Mm. I find personally that your options just start disappearing one by one, <laughs> right? You made a really interesting point before we said we might be attentive to the inner life to the extent that we hear someone say something and say that reveals something about them. Yeah. Right. Yes. What we don't do, the move we don't do, which is I think the move that just about every serious moral philosophy does, is pay attention to the way in which what we say affects the heart. So it becomes formative of who we are, wow. not merely revelatory. Oh, I'm so glad you're saying that. That's right. right. That's right. It's exactly right. So it, the idea is not just that by our speech we might damage someone else or we might reveal some kind of moral sin that resides within us. It's that we might cultivate such sins, mm. that we might cultivate such transgressions. Since we're using different <laughs> traditions to explain this, one of my favorite examples, I love, one of the things I love within the Islamic tradition are the stories of Jesus. Because they're particular to the Islamic tradition in a lot of cases. There's some overlap with Christian tradition. They're particular to the Islamic tradition. Um, they're not all of authentic providence, I don't think, in the sense that they're not all traceable to, you know, say the, the Prophet Muhammad saying that Jesus said something which becomes authoritative for Muslims as a kind of revelation, not as a historical eyewitness report, but as a prophetic statement. So they're not all like that. But they're all great. They really are. <laughs> and one of my favourites is relevant in this, um, which I've only been able to trace to certain kinds of elements of 
like not primary sources, just literature that references them. One of which, of course, is uh, Al Ghazali's Ihya Onum Din, which is you know one of the classic works. But the the story has Jesus coming, walking with his disciples, and coming across a dead dog, like a carcass of a dog. And this story is told in various ways. But the basic idea is that the disciples all say, oh, what a terrible smell. This is disgusting. It makes me feel sick, all this sort of stuff. And Jesus looks at it and says, but how white are its teeth? Hmm. And, the, <laughs> and then the disciples are, what, do you see what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. And the response of Jesus in that exchange is, there's various quotes. One is say nothing about God's creatures except praise, for example. But the point is that, that he's making is, I do not want to habituate my tongue to saying bad things. Hmm. So even in the context of something that is so obviously objectionable to so many people, I'm not going to permit myself to observe that, not because there's no truth in it, not even because I would be harming the dead dog by it, but because there is something else to be cultivated here. I can't habituate my tongue to saying bad things of, in this case, in, in the way that Jesus phrases it, in, of God's creation. Now, I love Jesus' stories in the Islamic tradition because he's such a singular, like he's pure spirit in the Islamic tradition, right? It's, it's, it's like the material aspect of the human being is gone hmm. in the way that... And so these are not things that you would expect people to attain to, right, as just ordinary people, that level. But they're there as kind of to jolt you, I guess. And so then I stop and I think about it. Okay, okay. So I'm watching my favourite football team play. And when there's, I see a player who I think is just not up to it, what do I want to do with that, Scott? Mm. You tell me, what do I want to do with that? Now, there's a version of this that would say, you know what, this is the contract. They, they benefit from the buzz that's around the game. Part of that is the freewheeling of opinions about players and so on and so forth. Okay, sure. You, you, by doing this, you create a consensual culture where this sort of exchange happens and blah, blah, blah. But actually, the more serious moral position would be to say, does your criticism of this player need to be voiced? You're not running the club or making some decision about who should be on a list or there's nothing riding on you saying this. Do you need to say it? Mm. And if you don't, are you just in a process of habituating yourself to something that, or habituating your tongue to evil, I guess, wow. to put it in sort of apocalyptic, to, you know, sort of these sort of grand moral terms. You know, I'm deliberately being shocking in the way that I say that, but... You see what I mean? Yes, I do. And so, so the further you walk down this road, I guess, the point I'm making is the further you walk down this road, the less becomes sayable. At which point I look at people like us and much more so people like me than people like you, and I say, is there a moral version of this? Of, of this? this thing that we do? Okay. Not just because we talk, like that that's our job, but that we talk in a way that is scheduled. You must have something to say that will fill 54 minutes every week. You must have something to say that will fill this bigger newspaper column every week or fortnight or month or whatever. You must have something to say every night for an hour. <laughs> mm. Can that possibly be an ethical 
vocation? Let me let me just quickly pick up a couple quick things, if you wouldn't mind. You did bring up the sayings of Jesus, and there is one that I think that is really, really pertinent that's ascribed to him in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus remarks, and this is with respect to food laws. And, you know, in most religious traditions, they're very, very, very strict, or at least defined food laws. They're things that go into a person's mouth that can defile that person and therefore are prescribed, proscribed in the sense of rendered lawless, unlawful. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles. And I think there's something that is precisely what you were saying before, that there are forms of speech that in the very act of uttering them, they don't just reveal an inner state, but the act of uttering them themselves does something corrupting to the person. And I, I would even go one step further than that, that there are things that are said by way of the imposition of the self upon the world, the desire to elevate oneself and to debate, to debase others, even in the act of saying something that looks or that sounds serious, but in fact is simply opinionated. I think I've mentioned before, Willie, that when my mom was trying to teach me another language, she said, if you're not sure how to pronounce a word, say it loudly. <laughs> and I, I think about that all the time, that volume, that intensity is mistaken for moral seriousness. Uh, and I think there is something about that itself, which is inherently corrupting, uh, not least because it kind of, it brooks no response in return. But see, there, there's something else here, though. And this is where I think I really want to bring Iris Murdoch into it. Uh, we've discussed before that Murdoch was incredibly attentive to the adjectives, to the language that we use to describe other people. You mentioned before about a football player. You don't like his performance out on the pitch. What terms do you use? What language do you use to describe his relative worth, his contribution to that team? And then you suddenly realize, let's just say I suddenly found something out about that person's state, about their inner life, about the circumstances prior to them taking the field. An, you know, a usual bit of fan slang or fan derision suddenly becomes unthinkable because I had no access to, I had no opportunity to observe, I had no ability to weigh the person's life leading into that game. And so what I say, oh, what a useless, is there any point in them being on the whatever? It suddenly becomes unspeakably callous. I've always loved, I've always appreciated the attention that Iris Murdoch gives to the adjectives that we use to describe other people. Because what she says is when we use certain adjectives to describe people, those adjectives don't just describe that person. They thereby color the way that we say that we see that person. She has this lovely thing that we can only act in a world that we can see, but the way that we see the world is determined by the way we describe it. One of her shorthands is we only act in a world that we can see, but we can only see a world that we can say. So the language that we use to describe other people, if they are uh, intolerant, bigots, misogynists, fascists, 
you know, crypto Nazis or whatever. Those then become projections onto the world and they color forever the way that we see those people. Whereas we, if we delve down and use more nuanced, more careful adjectives, that person is fearful. That person is insecure. That person is in some way either craven or even nostalgic for something that's been lost. You delve down into really the more accurate adjectives that you would use to capture what it is that constitutes a person and their being and their fearfulness in the world. There's something about that that colors the world in such a way that you can then view them with the right degree of love and attentiveness. But I think even beyond that, it's just the last point I'll say, you know, we, we live in a time which is defined in so many ways by the commodification of what Nietzsche, what Kierkegaard, what Wittgenstein called chatter, namely irresponsible speech, speech with no end. Things happen so that we can gossip about it. Things happen so that we can chatter about it. Words fill up our, the spaces between us and they leave those spaces full of refuse and rubble such that words of real truth or of insight or of clarity or of light or enlightenment, they, they can't find a space. They can't find a proper place because chatter has filled up every moment between us. I mentioned um, last week, I think, this strange Korean-German philosopher, Byung-Chul Han. He talks about us living in an age of communication without community, whereas he says mm. that religious communities know how to practice community without communication because they know how to live in periods of appropriate, of proper silence, where what is most worthy, what is most needing to be said is able to come up among us precisely because we've cultivated the space for real communication through the very act of practicing silence. And so I think that there are a whole lot of things there that, yes, these are present within religious communities. These are also present, I think, within the philosophical tradition, using words as carelessly, as vindictively, as self-servingly, as irresponsibly as we do. These are forms of corruption. They corrupt the inner self and they corrupt the conditions of our common life. There are very few ways of purifying the inner life and of helping to purify the conditions of the life in which we share, uh, other than, I think, purifying precisely the speech that we use, cutting out that chatter and making sure that what it is we say has something like the ring of beauty and truth and love to it. You're listening to The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. You can also listen to the show as a podcast anytime you like. So that's on the ABC Listen app or by following The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice. Our guest is one of our favorites, a true friend of this program. Samuel Spall is senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Sydney. Sam, we were joking off air that we tend to have you on the show only when something really weird and obscure and odd comes up as a topic of conversation. Last time it was emojis. This time it's purification of the tongue. So welcome back to the minefield, I think. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, it's an honor to be part of this very cool Ramadan series. 
So look, I mean, this th- is basically the emojis topic redone, isn't it, Scott? <laughs> I mean, there is, a, there is a, a world in which you could see it. <laughs> well, I mean, Sam, one of the reasons we wanted to have you back on is one of your great philosophical interests is in the philosophical fragment or the aphorism, which you would say is a form of highly condensed, purified speech or writing that is meant, if I've understood you correctly, to counterpose, to be a countervailing force against, to object to the prevalence, the predominance of chatter. I mean, the great practitioners of the philosophical aphorisms, people like Soren Kierkegaard, Friedrich Nietzsche, Ludwig Wittgenstein, all of them condemned in the most uncertain terms, empty speech, chatter, as this thing that simply fills up the void among us or between us uh, and doesn't allow truthful speech to emerge. Why don't you sort of take things from there and lead us where you want to go? Sure. Um, Can I just read you a quick aphorism from Lichtenberg? So Lichtenberg says this, the most brightly colored birds sing the worst. The same goes for people. So (laughs) I do think, you know, and I don't want the conversation to devolve into another conversation about emojis and the internet and how communication is changing our internal lives, or at least I don't, I don't think that should be the entirety of the conversation, but I do think it's important to note the ways in which more content can lead to less meaningful content or more stuff can lead to less seriousness. More information can lead to less knowledge and wisdom. And so you're right that part of my interest in what I guess we are for the purposes of a certain project calling the philosophical fragment are in this process of distillation, trying to say something, but trying to say something in the most condensed manner possible as a kind of corrective. But I don't, I don't want to see the project wholly from that sort of, you know, negative or oppositional standpoint, I do think we could talk a lot about the particular beauties that can be found in, in fragmentary or aphoristic writing. Um, could I just, though, make a couple comments mm. about the Murdoch stuff to set the stage, Please. if you don't mind? No, because, go ahead. So there's this, there's this bit of Iris Murdoch, and in fact, to follow on from something you're saying, Scott, a particular adjective that gets, it's, it's a particular image, right, that gets invoked a lot on this show. And I think for, for good reason, this image of the sort of fat, relentless ego and of the moral life, or at least a, a, an important part. And I think both of you are saying in the contemporary world, in our world, an underappreciated part of the moral life has to do with this internal struggle of constraining or battling against the fat, relentless ego. I just want to make a couple observations about that. First, you could object to the formulation, right? Like, I I don't think you mean this, and maybe Murdoch didn't mean it, but right, like the fatness isn't really core to what's going on, right? This isn't like a body shaming thought. I think one way to think about what's going on here is to connect it to a feature of Ramadan and other spiritual traditions, which you guys actually discussed quite interestingly in the last series, namely the practice of fasting. So fasting isn't about 
trimming the body so that you can post a picture on Instagram where you, you know, have this cult of the body sculpted ideal. Fasting has other spiritual aims that are not to be conceived in that way. So the fatness in the fat relentless ego, I take it, is supposed to be, it's supposed to refer to this idea that we need in order to pursue virtue, to deflate the self, right? To sort of shrink the scope of self-interest in our motivations and also, you know, our preoccupations or our mental life. But I guess the more substantive philosophical thing I want to say about this quickly is just that though I think that's important, I think that perspective is insufficient, or at least it has limitations in thinking about how we might go about doing this purification, this internal purification. That's the topic of the conversation today. I mean, I think one way to think about another complementary aspect of this is to think not about the sort of shrinking of the ego, but about the modification of the ego. You know, like how can, here's some examples, how can I make, as it were, this is a strange formulation, but how can I make myself more transparent to myself? How can I uh, make myself more internally beautiful? I mean, think of, so here's maybe a better example. I think the following is a key therapeutic question that obviously relates to the topic for today. Like in therapeutic context, I and other people are very frequently asking questions like this. How am I speaking to myself? You know, how am I addressing myself? What habits have I formed surrounding myself that are neurotic, damaging, unfair, mean, misogynistic, whatever? You see what I mean? So, so that's not to dismiss the sort of Murdoch image, which I think is quite interesting, but in a way it's to contextualize some perhaps separable aspects of this internal process of moral purification, mm. if you like. Can I, can I pick up something there, Willie, just before you jump sure. in? Yeah. Look, I, I, think that's, I, I think that's really important, Sam, and I, I take that all, I think, just about all of it as, as given. I mean, the one, probably the one slight question mark I would raise would be Iris Murdoch's own which is that almost every self-perspective upon the self indulges to an unhelpful degree on a self-consoling fantasy or an illusion uh, that offers oneself the most generous possible alibi. So that oftentimes forms of self-reflection when not aided by the truthfulness of a friend's, say, moral encounter can lead to forms of self-justification that are ultimately illusory, maybe even unhelpful. I think, it, I think it's really interesting you raise the issue of fatness. Because for, for Murdoch, what that was meant to convey is the idea of acquisitiveness. Everything gets yep. pulled in. Everything that exists out there exists for me and to my end. And the, the, the great counterexamples that she gives are those where seeing something of such beauty, and her famous example, of course, is a, is a kestrel flying outside of her window. She's sitting at her desk. She's worrying about a moment of damage to her reputation. She sees a kestrel flying, and she forgets herself. And she uses that, I think, as a really wonderful image of the moments of proper 
self-forgetfulness that are part of the cultivation of a morally defensible inner life. Let me use a slightly different example, though, because I think this, again, brings us really directly to what it is we're talking about. One of the other ways that I think the, the fat, relentless ego, this the ego which expands to fill the spaces between people, let me sort of put it that way, is our inherent, in an age of chatter, our inherent discomfort with moments of silence. There's a, there's a moment that I just, I find it revelatory in its power. In the second installment of Ali Smith's uh, Seasons Quartet, Winter, there are two sisters, Sophie and Iris, uh, one of them representing conservative Britain, one of them representing progressive Britain, <laughs> fallen out with one another to an irreparable degree. They're gathering together at a dinner table for a very, very austere Christmas indeed. Uh, they're there with Sophia's son, Art, with the woman who is posing as Art's girlfriend. Her name is Lux, or appropriately Light. There is a moment of severe hurtfulness in an exchange between Iris and Sophia, these two women who, apart from being sisters, have so little in common. And there is a moment of such bruising verbal cruelty that silence descends upon the room. And the sister who is injured acknowledges this slight verbal inclination towards the other, this, this revelation of a degree of weakness and self-knowledge. And Ali Smith writes, at that moment, she knew that too much truth had been spoken. And at that moment, art, um, the, the, the whole novel is based on Shakespeare's symboling. So this probably won't make a whole lot of sense to those who aren't familiar with Shakespeare's play. But at that moment, art has a vision that the four of them are underground, that they're surrounded by rich, fertile soil, that there's this greeny brownness all around them. As soon as there's this moment of too much truth having been spoken, there's a degree of fertile silence among them where only the most appropriate words can be spoken, where the possibility of the rich renewal of relationships is hanging there in the balance. And yet, in the meantime, the silence there is sacred. What Iris Murdoch means by the fat, relentless ego is, would be the compulsion at that moment to break it with a bad joke or with nervous laughter or a scathing retort to cover up one's own moment of momentary weakness. And I think it's that idea of the cultivation of the spaces between us through the proper use of well-judged, properly weighted language of generous adjectives, the moments of carefully cultivated silence that invite the other person to engage with the, their full moral reality, to allow their moral reality to impress themselves upon my attention. I think that's the kind of cultivation uh, Cultivation of the spaces between us through the words that we use, and I think more precisely through the language that we resist, that I think is what's really at stake in her use of this kind of this fatness, this relentlessness that always has to fill the space, that always has to impress my own self, my own ego 
upon the reality of another person. Um, if you just join us, this is The Minefield. We'll lead Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We're joined today by Samuel Spall, who's a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Sydney. Sam, I might get you to respond to what Scott just said. Sure. I mean, I think we agree, Scott. Um, I suppose one way to take what I'm saying is just that I don't see a competition between what I'm calling these aspects of the inner moral life, the sort of purification in terms of a better understanding, not just epistemically, but a more generous understanding of who I am and what I want and the kind of person that um, it would suit me to be, I, I think engaging in really seriously investigating those questions, though it's not always philosophical task in the sense of, let me write a question on the board and give arguments. So I invoked the therapeutic context precisely because it's a, a matter of engaging with the self via the assistance of another person, mm -hmm. but that I think ramifies through the relationships we go on to, if we're successful, or to some degree successful in plumbing the depth of the self in those kinds of ways, that um, really does influence the ways in which we can be properly silent with other people. We can be a good listener. We can take the right tone and make the right gesture or use the right adjective in a difficult situation. So I, I don't think we're disagreeing. These are just complementary aspects of this part of the moral life, right? I mean, sometimes you need a post to guard your mouth, right? And sometimes you need to lack the kind of reticence that makes us silent when silence is actually easier, you know? And the, the harder thing is finding something and the right thing to say. Hmm. Can I just make a couple of observations? I, I want to go back to your observations about aphorisms, actually, Samuel, because as you were talking, it, it seemed to me that there's an argument that one of the things that a, a forum like Twitter does is that it encourages the aphoristic. I think this would be a generous interpretation, but it's one that you could possibly offer. Very so then I generous. thought, yeah, but then I thought, okay, so what, why is that not convincing? What... What is it that, that the difference is? And I, there are many things you could offer. I'm sure you could offer your own. Um, but the thing that I happened upon is really the difference is the underlying ethic and really the damage of something like social media is the, the ethos that pervades it and that then pervades society, which is one of the imperative to speak, mm. that you must say something. We see this often in moments of sort of political flashpoint where it's like you can't be silent about something that's, you know, big on Twitter today or big in the news cycle. If you are, you're complicit or whatever. But you see it in just more mundane matters. If you haven't posted something for a while, then that's a problem. You need to come up with something that you can put out into the world. There's sort of the imperative being the exact opposite of the imperative of just about every moral tradition, which is that of silence, of hesitation. Right. And so... The speed element of it, I think, is a really interesting aspect of it. I think it relates a little bit to what you're talking about too, Scott, that finding the right word, the right adjective, if you want to be Madokian about it, or 
These are all things that actually take time and yes. reflection. That's exactly. Um, I'm immediately put in mind of the famous example of of Abu Bakr, who, if he famously would keep a rock in his mouth, so that whenever he wanted to say something, he would have to go to the trouble of removing the rock to, to speak, which was uh, just a, the, the idea was to create a barrier to speech, so that you would only speak when the you would actually do it, like there was a reason to. Otherwise, you couldn't be bothered apart from anything else, right? It just this sort of... It, that's a kind of alien concept for us, I think, that we would we would want to restrain ourselves in that sort of way. But then I thought, the thing that we haven't addressed here, which I think is quite germane in the context of, like, social media discourse and whatever, even though it's the, I happily argue that in the social media context it's it happens in a debauched way. There is such a thing as necessary speech. There are moments where silence is the cowardly thing to do. Mm, that's true. Not the virtuous thing to do. Just as there are moments yeah. where speaking is the egotistical thing to do, uh, not the virtuous thing to do. And these two things can be really difficult. Like it, to the spot... You, the person who sees themselves as constantly speaking out for justice is a grave danger of servicing little more than their ego in doing that. Mm-hmm. But so too the person who refuses ever to speak out. But although in their case it may not be ego they're servicing, maybe it's status or maybe it's some kind of set of accoutrements or maybe it's just, it's just cowardice. And I think one of the great moral tasks is to try to discern, to pick between the two. And that immediately puts me in mind, and I, I guess I just want your reflections on this thought, Samuel, but that this wonderful quote from a man by the name of Bistro al-Hafi, it says, basically the idea is this, when it would please you to speak, be silent. And when it would please you to be silent, speak. <laughs> and I, I just wonder how far... That's aphoristic. You must love that. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. Is it sound so, insufficient guidance, or what? What is that? Well, I mean, that, that that can't be sufficient guidance, but it's pregnant with meaning, and I think it's um, deeply interesting. So, I, I mean, towards the end of those remarks, Walid, you are sounding quite, I would say, Aristotelian or um, Confucian, if you like. You know, I mean, we could generalize your observation about the say, moderation in the virtue of speech to, if you're an Aristotelian, you know, or a thinker of this stripe, to all virtues, right? All virtues involve the, or the cultivation of any particular virtue is going to involve the cultivation of the right dispositions to hit the mean, right? So that you're not in excess or deficiency of the relevant matter, okay? So you're not speaking too much or at the wrong times, or for you know self-serving motives, and you're also not too silent. You're not a doormat. You're not getting walked all over. You're standing up when there is injustice, and you need to speak about it. So I think that's an insightful observation, which can be generalized, at least in a certain sort of dominant moral paradigm, to be an important observation about virtue generally. But I'd like to say something about the Twitter thing, because you asked a great question there, and I think it's useful to... I think what you said is correct, but let me try and cast it in a perhaps slightly different light, at least, right? For me, it's not just about like 
the speed and the urgency to say something on Twitter, uh, which are highly relevant to making Twitter, I think, not genuinely aphoristic. But, you know, when, when people try to give characterizations, which some sort of literary critics or philosophers are want to do, of the aphorism as a distinctive literary or literary philosophical form, like what is an aphorism? What makes something an aphorism? It doesn't, no one says that it suffices that it's a short bit of writing, right? It's got to be short, <laughs> sure. okay? But then... <laughs> But then they, everyone adds a further condition, and, and commonly the condition added is quite a vague one. It's something like the aphorism has to be philosophical, okay? So what does that mean? Obviously, huge ball of wax, but I take it that one interpretation of that is that it has to be intellectually surprising, hmm. or it has to provoke further thinking, or it has to be unpacked, you know, it, it, it's unlike maybe a proverb in that respect, like it doesn't just capture a bit of common sense wisdom, it might overturn a bit of common sense wisdom in a surprising reversal in a final clause or something like that, in a way that maybe is hyperbolic or humorous or witty or something like that, but that prompts further reflection. It asks more of you, right? And that characterization, I think, helps you to see more about why we should reject the idea that Twitter is aphoristic. I think Twitter is, I mean, there are some people who do some stuff on Twitter, which I do think is genuinely aphoristic, but much more commonly, it's not philosophical at all. It's sort of knee-jerk. You know exactly what's happening. You can't even predict what people are going to say. That lack of surprise might be a further way to understand what's special. Well, what's maybe not so special about Twitter and what's special about the aphorism, at least when done well. Hmm. That, that dimension of surprise is so important for me. Not that surprise is a good in itself. I don't think it is. There are things that are genuinely horrible that are also surprising. Um, at the same time, and I think Kierkegaard was really sharply aware of this, that when speech emerges from a place of interior struggle, and you can tell that the words are weighted and have been forged with a degree of what Kierkegaard himself would call responsibility. In other words, as soon as I say this, it functions like something like a vow. I'm taking responsibility for what I say such that what I say uh, stands over me almost as a form of obligation that I need now to rise to. You can tell when words emerge out of that condition of interior struggle, because there is that element, I think. I mean, sometimes they're just sort of prosaic and ridiculous, but there often is that dimension of not so much earnestness, but it cracks the world open in a way. It sheds light on things in a way such that you didn't see them previously. And when there's that additional dimension of personal investment in the words or personal implication in the words that are spoken, so it's not just out there, but if you like, I'm holding myself, what is left of my ego tenderly in my hands and offering, them, offering itself for scrutiny. I think there's something there that is reflexively um, and ultimately morally compelling. We've actually come full circle. I mean, it's kind of where we started, isn't it? Mm. So 
that's it's very neat when that happens. The only outstanding question, and I'll just let you do this in a yes-no fashion if you like, Samuel, is do we have jobs that can be ethically redeemed? Uh, can I do a not yes-no fashion? The, the, the answer uh. is yes, but why don't I um, give, can I give you two quick passages maybe by way of conclusion? So just on what Scott was just saying, I really like this thing that Andre Gide once wrote. He said, it is not so much what you say in a book that constitutes its value, but all you would like to say, which nourishes it secretly. Ah, beautiful. So I think that's a really Isn't nice that? statement of sort of what, what you were talking about, Scott, and, and how this idea about the purification of speech that we're pursuing is really tightly related to at least certain kinds of artistic production. But on this final question, we'll lead I'll just maybe leave you with a proverb from the book of Proverbs, which I suspect at least Scott will like. So it goes like this. <laughs> the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. So I think that's mm. a really aphoristic proverb. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. How do the lips of the righteous feed the multitudes. Well, you know, I think um, certain kinds of righteous speech is what, you know, constitutes community and moral improvement. And hopefully uh, speech like this sort of speech is um, doing its part in that project. Maybe you're holding up a mirror. I'm not sure I like the reflection. So we'll end it there. Samuel, thank you. This has been great fun. Thank you. That's uh, Samuel Schfall, who's a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Sydney, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Scott, we made it to the end. We might even we come back it. next week. Yeah? Okay, sounds good. <laughs> All right, we'll do it. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.